as we come once again this morning, we're coming to our study really through, in a general way, through the Lament Psalms. And if you remember, we're on this journey of trying to learn, even as Steve mentioned, trying to learn this language of grief. I think this language is really important for us to learn, and it can be so impactful in the life of every believer. It's a language that I firmly believe most of Christianity does not know how to speak. So I think it's, it's, it's my goal with this study, it's our goal as a body, that with our time together on Sunday morning, for us as individual believers and as a body, to learn how to biblically speak this language of grief. And as we've been working through this process that we see in the Psalms when it comes to lamenting, We've talked about how in the middle of our pain, we must turn to God in prayer. And, like we talked about last week, that we must bring our godly complaints to Him. It is okay to have doubts, but those doubts should humbly drive us to God and honestly lay out our questions and frustrations to Him. To lay out our godly complaints about our suffering that doesn't seem in line with God's character. Remember, these are the things that don't make sense to us. We, we read scripture and we see something about God, something about his character in scripture, but then we look at the circumstances around us and we say, wait, that doesn't seem to line up. That doesn't seem to make sense. I see this about God in the Bible, but, but I'm experiencing this and the two don't seem to go together. However, when we finished last time, we said, emphasized how we cannot stay in our complaints. We can't sit there. We can't linger and live there. If we, if we bring our complaints to God and we never allow those godly complaints to do its work in us and we stay there, then what will result is we will become angry and bitter towards God. If we sit in our complaints, and we stay in our complaints, and we don't allow this language of grief to move us through there, then we will become angry towards God, bitter towards Him. And ultimately, we said ultimately that's going to result that we're going to pull away from God, and we're going to pull away from other people as well. So we have to understand that's not the purpose of bringing our complaints. Godly complaints are designed to be a pathway or an avenue from our pain to God. Like walking a path, we're not meant to linger on the path, but to, to take the journey through the path to the ultimate destination, which this next step that we're going to talk about is that our godly complaint should lead us to ask boldly. Our godly complaints are designed to bring us before God where we boldly ask for God, to act in a way that is consistent with his character. This part of our journey takes us from the why to the who. And that is really crucial for us. It is so important. We can't stay in the why, but we must allow the why to drive us into the who. We said last week that the reason we are filled with questions is because of this difference that we see. So we should allow this difference, these questions, these doubts, these frustrations to drive us into who God is. And that's important for us to understand. You know, shortly after my wife and I got married, I remember back in th 2017, there was a total solar eclipse that we could see here in the area. And it was a really big deal. You know, they, they, of course, they talked about it a lot on the news. They even delayed the start of school that year 
until uh, after the eclipse so that the schools wouldn't have to worry about kids trying to look at the eclipse and you know sometimes people do dumb things when they're when they're observing that stuff you know they don't want any liability that way so they actually delayed the start of school now a total solar eclipse occurs when the moon right the moon we know comes between the sun and the earth and i don't know about you but when i look at the sun or i think about the sun on a clear day it is so intense it seems like that there is no way that the light could be blocked from the sun how could there possibly be something that could get in the way get in the way of the intensity of the sun that we experience in our lives yet we know that for that moment for that moment during a total eclipse that's exactly what happens for a moment we are sitting in the shadow of the moon that has blocked out these harsh effects of the sun and we know that at the same time this this kind of solar eclipse doesn't remove the sun it doesn't make the sun go away. We know it's still there. We know it's still there behind the moon, yet we don't feel its effect in that moment. And that's really important to what we're talking about this morning. When we're in our suffering, it's like the sun is beating down relentlessly on us. It's hot and it's intense, and it seems like there is nothing that could eclipse it in our lives. So what does asking boldly do? Well, asking boldly not only drives us into God's character, but also causes, I'm going to quote here, also causes, as Mark Vrogop describes, he says it causes God's character to eclipse our complaints. And what does he mean by that? I'm going to quote him. He says, it captures the fact that why questions are not always answered before we move into requests. Just as one heavenly body moves into the shadow of another during an eclipse, so too the why questions and the who questions coexist, but not equally. Who God is becomes the more prominent reality while not removing the lingering questions. As we make our bold requests, why is this happening moves into the shadow of who is God. Now, I believe there are two very important statements there in what he has said. First, understanding that the why questions are not always answered before we bring our bold request to God. Listen, the why questions may never be answered in this lifetime. We know we live in that reality. But we're not meant to linger there. We're, we're meant to eclipse our godly complaints of questions and frustrations with the much greater character of God. So that's the first truth. The second is that it is okay for the why and the who questions to coexist. It's okay for those to coexist as long as, as long as the character of God outweighs our questions. It is okay to live in that tension of not knowing why, but running into his character. It's okay for our questions to not be answered. It's okay for us to not understand what God is doing. The important thing is that the character of God, the character of God will always outweigh, be greater than, or eclipse our lingering questions and frustrations. It doesn't mean those go away. 
but they will hide just, just like the sun behind the moon. They will hide behind the shadow of our God. So the psalm that we're going to be looking at this morning, at least part of, is going to be Psalm 22. So you can see, see this in this language that God has given us. We can speak the language, and I want to see this whole process that we've been learning up to this point to see how godly complaints lead us into the character of God and his promises. I'm going to start by reading the first two verses of Psalm 22. Psalm 22, verses 1 and 2 says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. So first, David turns to God in prayer. He cries out, my God, my God. And we said, we looked at that a couple weeks ago. That is the first step. We must turn to God in prayer. But then the psalmist brings his godly complaint in the form of questions and frustrations. David cries out to God. He's asking, why does it seem that you have abandoned me and that you're not answering me when I cry to you? The circumstances of life are telling David that God has left him and God will not answer him. That's what his circumstances are communicating to him about God. And so he comes to God with those questions, and he comes to God with those frustrations. These are heartfelt groanings in the middle of his pain. So his circumstances are telling him, God has left you, and he does not hear you. But yet he knows that God is with him, and that God does hear him. At least he he knows that intellectually to be true. God is with me and he hears me, yet my circumstances are screaming, God has abandoned you and he's not listening to you. So what is David to do with that? What, what, what is he to do with his complaints? How is he, how, where is that supposed to take him? Well, you notice that he doesn't stay there. He uses his unanswered questions, his frustrations and his doubts to drive him to God. Notice a very important word. So this is an important word to see this transition. When you read the Lament Psalms, there's going to be, in the vast majority, there's going to be a transitional point in the psalm. And a common word that shows that transitional point is the word yet, or but, or something that transitions from godly complaint into something else. And we see that right away in verse 3. He's come to God, and he brings his complaints, he brings his questions, he brings his doubt. Yet right at the beginning of verse 3, we see this word, yet. He says, yet. And this is a turning point in the lament. That honestly, this turning point, is what makes the lament what it is. This is, when we, when we said in the very first sermon on this, I said that to lament is uniquely Christian. This is the point that makes it uniquely Christian, is this turning point in the lament. And so we read in verses 3 through 5, if you look at Psalm 22, he says, yet, yet, so in opposition to, opposed to what my circumstances are telling me about God, yet you are holy, 
enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. So immediately David turns to God. He brings his complaint, yet he turns to God and to his character and to his promises and to the ways that he has seen God work. So in contrast to what he sees, and in contrast and in opposition to what he feels, David declares that God is holy. God is without sin. God is greater than anything he could comprehend. And not only is God holy, but he has shown and proved himself to be faithful to his people for generations. David reminds his own heart of all that God has done of all the ways that God has shown himself to be present, to answer prayer, to deliver his people. He reminds himself with the truth about God in the face of his circumstances. His circumstances tell him one thing. What he knows about God tells him something else. So he chooses. He chooses to remind himself of truth. He chooses in the moment, in the midst of the suffering and the pain, to not sit where his emotions want him to be, and instead he makes the intentional decision to turn and to focus on God. And I think this is an important point. Every single person here, when in the middle of suffering, you're going to reach a decision point. You're going to reach this decision point you're going to reach this point where you've turned to God in prayer you've brought your complaints and guess what he brings in his complaints but have the circumstances changed they haven't changed at all there's actually nothing about his circumstances in that moment as he's coming to God there's nothing about his circumstances that have changed so his circumstances are unchanged he's come to God he's brought his complaints and it stayed the same So you have your circumstances telling you one thing about God, and you have Scripture telling you the other. And you're going to have to decide which are you going to believe. Which are you going to put your faith in? Are you going to trust your feelings and your emotions in the middle of your circumstances, or are you going to believe Scripture by faith and who you experientially know God to be? If you decide to put your faith in the circumstances, then you will stay in your complaints and you will grow bitter and angry with God, ultimately withdrawing from God, withdrawing from other people. If you decide to put your faith in Scripture and who you know God to be and who you've known God to be in your life, then you will ultimately actually grow closer to God and to other people. And that's without the circumstances actually changing. To be clear, this is not because the circumstances have changed. There are two different roads that can be walked down in our grief without the circumstances ever changing. And it's going to come to this decision point. And and I think it's also helpful, even in this psalm we see it, if you look at the rest of Psalm 22, we see it's not, like, this is not the only time David's confronted with this choice in the same season of suffering. I'm going to read verses 6 through 10. 
So he has, he has come to God, he brings his complaint, and he may, has a turning point into God's character. Then we, then we come back to verse 6 and it says, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. They say, He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet, you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. So we see this same cycle again that we just talked about, and I think that that's really important. I think it's important because you need to understand this process of lamenting and this process of grieving and speaking this language of grief. It is a process. It is not a one and done kind of thing. It isn't that, okay, I'm grieving, I lament once, I feel all better, and then I move on. This is a constant battle and fight in our own hearts. It's a battle between our pain and our belief. It's a battle between what we feel and what we know to be true. And this word yet gets us there. It brings us from our pain to our belief. It helps place our pain in the backdrop of our belief. It doesn't remove our pain, but it puts it in a place where it can be eclipsed. It's like the line in David Crowder's song, How He Loves, in which he sings, he says, He is jealous for me. Loves like a hurricane. I am a tree, bending beneath the weight of his wind and mercy. And here's the the important when all of a sudden I am unaware of these afflictions eclipsed by glory, and I realize just how beautiful you are and how great your affections are for me. I think he beautifully expresses that even in those lyrics. It's not that the afflictions are gone. It's not that they're not there. It's just that those afflictions are eclipsed by glory. They're eclipsed by the character of God. It's eclipsing the pain by reminding our hearts the truth of who God is and the ways we have already seen him work in our lives and in the lives of those around us. In the psalm, if we've seen like David brings his godly complaints, he comes before God, he brings his godly complaints, and then without answers to those complaints, he turns to God. And in the light of who God is and what God has done, Right? He's reminded himself of God's character. In the midst of that, he actually makes bold requests. He actually calls on God then to act in accordance with the character that he knows who God is. He actually asks him, here God, like I'm reminding myself of who you are, and then I'm going to boldly ask that you respond in accordance with who I know you to be. And we see this in verse 11, and we see it in verses 19 through 21. So I'm going to read, I'm going to read verse 11, and then I'm going to jump ahead and read verses 19 through 21. So after he's done this, he makes a bold request in verse 11. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. We see again in verse 19 through 21, it says, But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. 
And we clear each of those is a bold request. It's a request to God to act. And the pain David is experiencing combined with the truth about God's character drives him to boldly ask God for help. So for us this morning then, the question becomes, what do we ask for? We're saying that we should turn to God in prayer. We should bring our complaints to God, but we should ask boldly. Like the complaints should be the pathway into God's character, and then we need to ask boldly. So what do we ask for? So as we did last week, we'll look at some different psalms to see the kinds of bold requests made to God throughout the lament psalms. There's nine of them. Hopefully you have a handout to write on. So let's, let's see what their requests were to God. So we're going to allow Scripture. We're going to allow the language of Scripture to inform and frame our bold requests to him. Remember, our desire is to learn this language, and, and God's given us this language in his word. So first of all, what, what, are, so what are bold requests that we see in the Psalms that the psalmist make? as they lament. And the first is, Arise, O Lord. Arise, O Lord. And this is a cry we see in seven of the lament psalms. For example, in Psalm 10, verse 12, the psalmist writes, Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. And in this psalm, as with many of them, it seems as if God isn't doing anything. He looks at the circumstances of this life and he knows that God could act in such a way that would change the situation. And to be clear, change the situation in a righteous way. And if you remember from last week, we looked at Psalm 10 last week, the psalmist's situation, and he doesn't understand why God seems to allow the wicked to prosper. He knows God is the just judge. He knows God's the king of the universe. He knows that he rules and reigns over all things, yet he still sees wicked people seem to get away with things. And if we take that same position, we make it more personal, when we feel like the wicked prosper, it doesn't seem to line up with what we read about God in Scripture. God hates sin. God is opposed to the proud. We know that everyone who doesn't know him, who haven't repented of their sin and put their trust in Christ, is walking around with the judgment of God building up against them. They're actually building up for themselves wrath on the day of wrath. And we know that God's promised one day he's going to come back. He's going to return. He's going to right all wrongs. We know one day he will come in judgment. And we know this in our minds that no one really gets away with anything. We know that whatever a person sows, that will they also reap. We know this intellectually, but when you're in the middle of experiencing suffering by a wicked person, when you are experiencing the blows against you, you wonder why it doesn't seem like, or why isn't God doing something now? We wonder why does God vindicate His own name now. And what is beautiful with what we see in Psalm 10 is when we are feeling that way, it is okay for us to call out to God to do something, 
to do something that is in line with his character. It's okay for us to say to God, I know that one day you will return. I know that one day you will right all wrongs. I know that one day you will bring all this to light. I know you are the king. I know you're the just judge of all the universe that you have created. But God, right now, in this situation, would you rise up and do something? God, would you show your justice? Now, God, would you show your character? Now, God, would you show yourself in this situation? Would you be glorified now by how you step into this and how you reveal yourself through it? God, please do it now. And in this plea, that's what the psalmist is calling God to do. God, arise. It seems like you're not doing anything but I know you're a God who can. Would you, would you do something? He's calling on God to come to his aid. He knows that if God moved to act, it would all be different. So he unashamedly calls on God to come and to help him to rise up and come to his aid. This is a bold request that we should and we can make to God in the middle of our suffering, but it's not the only one. Not only arise, and secondarily, grant us help. Grant us help. As humans, we like to think that we are self-sufficient. We like to think that we can do things on our own. We don't need anybody else's help. And in our culture, it's particularly true, right? In our culture, asking for help, for someone's help, is a sign of weakness. Right? It's a sign of wimpiness, suffering but the, pro- the issue is that suffering confronts that lie that we tell to ourselves. Suffering, pain, sorrow, grieving reminds our hearts that we actually need others. And that's a good thing. It doesn't feel good. But it is a good thing to be reminded that, guess what? We are not the masters of our universe. We actually don't run this race on our own. We are dependent creatures, whether we realize it or not. In suffering... Suffering makes that acutely makes us acutely aware of that. And what it reminds us first and foremost is that we need God. We, we need God. You need God. I need God. We never reach a point in our journey as pilgrims in this life where we suddenly arrive. We, we may feel like we don't need him, but we do. Suffering reminds us of that, but not only does it remind us that we need God, it also reminds us that we need other people. I like how Paul Tripp puts it. He says, suffering is a messenger telling us to be human is to be dependent, which is such a true statement. But in that moment when we realize we can't do it ourselves and we need God's help, what do we cry out to him? What do we boldly ask him when we feel the intensity of our need for him? Well, Psalm 60, verses 11 through 12, says this. It says, Oh, grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. I don't know if you caught that, but notice that when the psalmist feels that he needs God, he cries out to God for help. He says to God, help me. I cannot do this on my own. I need your help. And that is what we should boldly ask God for when we are keenly aware of our utter inability to do anything on our own. We should cry out to God for help. 
And whether we realize it or not, in that moment, that is actually a bold request to God. It's a bold request to God because we know God can help in very physical and tangible ways. We know he can step into whatever the situation is. He can do something. We don't know if he will in the way that we want him to, but we know it would be within his character to do so. We also know it would be within his character to choose not to. So we know it would be consistent with the ways we've actually seen God show up in our lives in the past, we've seen in Scripture. So what's hard, what's hard is that we don't know exactly what that answer is going to be, but we just know that we need God's help. The point is, though, the point is that we need to press into God and ask boldly. We need to press into God in faith. We need to turn to God, bring our complaints, and then ask him boldly for his help. Because we know the psalmist who cries out in this, he knows two things. He can't do it. He needs God's help, and God can be trusted. And we see that in those verses. And those should be the two great cries of our heart with this plea is, God, I can't do it. I need your help, and I know I can trust you. I know I can trust you. So third, what, what's another request? One, uh, thirdly is remember your covenant. Remember your covenant. And in Psalm 25, verse 6, he says, Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. That's one of the things that we actually see common in the Psalms is a consistent turning back to God's covenant. Time and time again, the psalmists return to the covenant that God has made with them. Why do they do that? Well, they do that because the covenant is an expression of unconditional love on the part of God toward them. If you remember back when God originally made his covenant with Abram, after Abram cuts these animals in two, God puts Abram to sleep, and then, and then God by himself walks between the two halves of the animals, making this one-sided covenant with, God, with Abram and his descendants. And throughout the Old Testament, God keeps coming back to his promises and back to his promises that he made in the covenant with his people. It is an expression of his character. It is an expression of his steadfast love. It is an expression of his unchanging love for his people. So when the psalmist doesn't feel loved by God, he turns to God and boldly asks him to remember his mercy and his steadfast love. Well, what does the psalmist mean when he asks God to remember? Does that imply that somehow God forgets and he has to be reminded of who he is? Or he has to be reminded of what he's done? Well, the obvious answer to that is no. God does not forget. So, so what does this mean? When the psalmist calls on God to remember, he's calling on God to fulfill the promises that he has made. It helps us because it reminds us of how God has already proven himself to be faithful. God has already proven himself to keep and to fulfill all his promises. It takes our present struggles and it anchors them in the faithfulness God has already shown while calling on God to remain faithful. And to emphasize once again, it's okay to ask to boldly ask God to work according to his promises. I mean, if we think in the New Testament, New Testament, we have promises of God's steadfast love. 
He's promised that he'll never leave us nor forsake us. He's promised he'll be with us until the end of the age. He's promised that we are his children who will spend all of eternity with him. He has promised that nothing can snatch his children away from himself. These are promises of God toward you and toward me that we can hold on to, that we can cling to, and that we can boldly ask God for. I know I'm not the only person who has been in a circumstance in life where I don't feel loved by God. It doesn't feel loving. Yet I know that God is love. So when we don't feel loved by God, we can turn to God in prayer, we can bring our complaints to Him, and we can call on His steadfast love in our lives Asking God to fulfill all that he has promised us. And, and we can ask God, would we experience that in real, intangible ways in this life, right here and now? God, I know, I know that your love for me is unchanging. God, remember your steadfast love. God, remember your steadfast love. God, remember your mercy towards me. And help me to move out in faith. Remember your covenant. Remember your covenant. Fourthly, fourthly, uh, let justice be done. Let justice be done. Now this request can take us into what would be more uncomfortable territory as believers. It takes us squarely into parts of Psalms of, that has the term imprecatory. You say, what is an imprecatory psalm? It's actually a psalm which calls for God's judgment or portions that call for God's judgment upon their enemies. Those are the phrases like, God, would you break their teeth? Would you shut their mouths? Would you bring justice? And I don't want to get into all the intricacies of these sorts of prayers, but I do want to say that when there is injustice, that is committed in our lives, there are going to be times where it is appropriate to call upon God to execute justice. To make this clear, this is a call for God to act according to His justice, not our sense of fairness, and not vengeance. So Psalm 83, verses 16 through 18 reads, Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. When we pray this sort of prayer, we are trusting, once again, we are trusting in God's justice, not our own. We're entrusting the situation and the individuals involved to God and his justice in his timing but to be clear, we look at the current situation we are in and it looks like wickedness is being allowed to prevail. There's an injustice that's being done that does not line up with a God who is just. And we know that God will judge all hearts. We know one day he will perfectly execute justice and he will right all wrongs. But yet we're calling on God to act today to act in this situation in such a way where His justice would be put on display so that His justice can be glorified here and now in this situation. And that's okay. 
that's okay. And you see that throughout the Psalms, but once again, to emphasize trusting in God's justice. God, would you judge in this situation? God, would you right wrongs in this situation. God, would you be glorified through an expression of your justice in the midst of this wickedness? Fifth, fifth, another one, he says, don't remember my sins. Don't remember my sins. Now, there are times when we sin and we feel like there is no way that we could have forgiveness that sin. There are times when we experience suffering in our life for our own choices that we make. We do. And in that, we feel as if God could never really truly cover that sin. Yet we know that the work of Christ on the cross covers all our sins, past, present, and future, all of them. So what do we do? What do we cry? Like we're experiencing the pain and suffering of our own sinful choices, and we feel like we could never be forgiven by God, yet we know that God has promised to cover our sins in Christ. So what do, we, what do we cry out to God? And what do we ask him? Well, we cry out like David in Psalm 51. In Psalm 51, this psalm is David's cry out to God after he comes to the understanding of the depth of his sin against God with Bathsheba. And in the suffering he's experiencing, he is experiencing suffering and pain that he will experience for many, many years to come because of his sinful choice. And what's the first thing that we read in Psalm 51 that he cries out to God? He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Now this is, this seems, when we talk about bold requests, this seems pretty remarkable if we think about it. David has committed adultery. And the woman he committed it with, uh, he got her pregnant. And then he tries to cover that up by having the husband murdered. So he marries her quickly, so the timing, right? You know, got to make sure the timing looks right so there aren't any questions. And so he orchestrates the battle so that her husband is killed. And now it's being exposed, and he's having to deal with the consequences of that sin, and God actually takes his son, his child from him, and promises that one day one of his children will divide the kingdom and that happens with Absalom and there's all kinds of pain and suffering as a direct result of David's sin. And yet, David knows the character of God. David knows that God is a God of steadfast love, a God of mercy. So in the middle of dealing with his own consequences for his sin, he cries out to God for mercy, for forgiveness. God, please blot out my transgressions. I think that's, that's quite a bold request, yet we see it here, and so it's okay. When we're suffering, experiencing the, the consequences of our own sin against God, yet we know the truth that God has promised to cover our sins in Christ, it is okay to cry out to God, to cling to that truth. God, have mercy on me. God, please forgive me. That is okay. So not not only that, in 6, restore us. Restore us. We live in a broken world. We are broken people who live in a broken world with every aspect of our lives affected by sin. 
Every part of it. That is the total depravity in which we live. There is nothing in this life that is in some way tainted by sin. And what that means is that that we often feel the brokenness and we long for it to be restored. We, we look at our aging and ailing bodies and we long to be free from pain. We experience brokenness in our relationships and we long for restoration and reconciliation. We, we experience brokenness just in nature and we long for restoration. And we know we have this promise from Scripture. Right? If we look at Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4, we know, we know that this is what is to come. John writes, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. The problem is, we know this is what is to come, but it doesn't look like what we're experiencing right now. We're not experiencing that kind of renewal and restoration in the midst of our suffering. Yet we see that it's promised by God, so, so what do we boldly ask God for? Well, Psalm 80, verse 3 says, Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. When we think about restoration as believers, there is that ultimate restoration when we get to be with God forever. And we should long for that day. But that doesn't mean we can't ask God to be glorified through restoration in this life. This is what we long for. Like I said, we want restoration in every area of our lives, our bodies, our marriages, our relationships, our own hearts, our churches. We long, we long to see a picture of future restoration now. And it's okay now to boldly ask God to do that. We can cry out to God to do that restoring work here And now, oh God, would you restore us now? I know there's a future restoration, but God, would you give it a picture of us in this situation, in the midst of this suffering, in the midst of this pain? Seven, seven, hear my cries. Hear, Hear my cries. I know I'm not alone when I say that there are times when it seems like God doesn't hear us. It seems like I cry out to God and he's not listening. When it seems like we never get an answer to prayer that the answer is always no. Or when it seems like God sure seems to answer other people's prayers and he doesn't answer mine. What can you boldly ask God when it seems... In the midst of your suffering, it seems like God's not listening. It seems and it feels like God doesn't hear you. Well, Psalm 28, verses 1 and 2, the psalmist says, To you, O Lord, I call. He says, My rock, be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. 
Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy. When I cry out to you for help, when I lift up my hands towards your most holy sanctuary. Or in other words, Psalm, you read these throughout the Psalms, but Psalms 86, Psalm 86, verse 6 says, Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In both of these cases, as with many others in the Psalms, we see the psalmist continue to come before God and actually cry out to Him to listen. God, would You hear my pleas? Would You hear my prayers? Would You hear my cries to You? We must keep going to God even if it seems like He isn't listening. And we see the same truth in the New Testament. This continually going to God. Luke, uh, Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. I'm going to read this. This is Jesus telling a parable. And, he, and Jesus, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Notice that Luke, he he helpfully explains the parable to us ahead of time. He says in verse 1, And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and to not lose heart. And that is the point of that parable, and it's the point of this request that's being made to God to hear my cries. We are to consistently, faithfully come before God and cry out to Him to listen to our prayers. If an unjust judge, and there's a point, right? If an unjust judge would listen to the pleas of a persistent widow, how much more will our Heavenly Father, who is a just judge, hear our cries to Him? When we feel as if God isn't listening, call out boldly to God to hear your cries. Eighth request here is teach me. Teach me. Now James starts off his letter in the New Testament with the following statement that should be quite shocking to us. In James 1, 2 through 4, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Right? We're to count the hardships in life as joy because of how God uses these circumstances to mature us spiritually. That's clear in James. We see in Romans 5. We also see it in Hebrews 12. That is one of the effects of trials if we allow it to do its work. It is meant to grow us in our relationship with God. All of them, and that means if we allow it, all our sufferings will teach us something. 
It will teach us something. And it may seem odd to our human way of thinking, but if we know that God uses suffering and trials in this life in this way to teach us, to train us, to mold us, to change us, even if we don't understand what he's doing, then we should cry out to God in our pain to do just that. We actually see that in the Psalms. In Psalm 86.11, he says, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. To be clear, to be clear, this isn't a cry for God to teach us because we think that if we could just learn what God wants us to learn, then the suffering and pain will stop. That is not the case. And anybody who's been a Christian for any amount of time knows that's not true. It's just not true. This is a cry in the middle of our pain that whatever it is that God has for you, whatever it is that he wants to do with this suffering in your life, whatever it is that would bring himself the most glory, God, would you do that? Whatever it is, teach me, change me, help me, God, to be more like you. And this is one request that I remember well. I remember a particularly painful time in my life. God crushed me. I had things in my life that needed to change, and he used pain of my own sin to reveal those things to me and to crush them through the circumstances of this life. And it hurt a lot. It was painful. And I remember through many tears, uh, by God's grace, I didn't even know what I was doing, I don't think. But I remember through many tears crying out to God, do whatever he would do in my heart through this. God, that whatever it is, I don't want to be the same at the other end of this. God, do whatever you would. Do however you would do it. God, I, I can't stay the same. Would you teach me? Would you teach me, in the, even in the middle of this, would you do whatever you're going to do with this so I could be more like you? So in those moments, it is okay. It's okay to cry out to God to teach us. And lastly, lastly, vindicate me. Vindicate me. Now, what do I mean by vindicate me? I think we can all relate to times when we have been falsely accused or we've been misunderstood or wrongly represented, where your character is maligned. And, and it seems like there's no way to defend yourself. And what your heart really wants is someone to set the record straight. You want someone to come and bring a decision, like a judge in a case. You want someone to rule in your favor. And this is different than asking for justice, because when we're asking for justice in that request, we're asking for God to bring judgment to bear in someone else's life. God, would you bring judgment for the wickedness that I'm experiencing from other people. This is asking God to rule in your favor and make it plain here. Now, in other words, to set the record straight and make it clear that you are not the one who is in the wrong. As we've been studying for Job through Job, I think it's super helpful because this is exactly what Job has been asking for. Job isn't asking God to bring judgment on his friends for their sinful counsel. He is asking God to come. God, would you come and would you set the record straight? 
He's asking God to come and make the matter plain so that he can be vindicated. God, I know I'm not perfect, but these consequences sure don't seem to line up with with what, what I know to be true in my life. And these people are falsely accusing me. God, would you come and vindicate me in this situation? I can't defend myself. I can't. God, would you do that? Would you make it plain? Would you reveal it so it's clear for everyone to see so that you could be glorified? God, would you vindicate me? And we see that in Psalm 35. In Psalm 35, verses 23 and 24, the psalmist says, Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication. For my cause, my God and my Lord, vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. God, would you vindicate me? Lord, I pray that as we've worked through these different kinds of bold requests to God while we're in the middle of our suffering, that it's clear we're talking about all different kinds of hardships, right? All manner of difficulty, all kinds of suffering and of pain. So this does not only apply to just one kind of suffering. Anytime we go through deep waters of pain and suffering, Lamenting is the language that will guide our hearts, that will be our guide, that leads our hearts to God. This language of grief is the romance that takes us to Him. So we need to turn to God in prayer. We need to bring our godly complaints. But we need to let those godly complaints drive us into the character of God where then we ask Him to boldly. Remember, when we're asking Him to do something boldly, we're asking Him boldly some request that is in line with His character. Not just anything that we want. Requests that line up with who God is. My circumstances tell me God is this. Scripture tells me God is the opposite. So I'm going to boldly turn, remind my heart of who God is, and ask God, would you do what Scripture says you are? Those are our bold requests we're to bring to Him. We have one more. We have one more step in this process that we're going to talk about next week. Because even if we do that, to be clear... If we turn to him, we bring our complaints, we make bold requests, it doesn't mean that any of our circumstances are actually going to change. It doesn't. There's no promise in Scripture that says if you do this, then you will get the answer that you want for your prayer. So we need one last thing. What do I do then? Right? If, if I come and I pray and I, I bring my complaints and I boldly ask God, to do something that's in line with his character, where do I land? Where do I sit? We said we can't sit in our complaints, so where am I going to sit then, even if life circumstances don't change? And that's what we're going to talk about next week to wrap this up. So as we come to a close this morning, I want us to consider this question. What actually makes us able to come before God? To bring our complaints to him and then ask him boldly. If we think about it, it's actually quite amazing that we can even do this. I mean, we're talking about the God of the universe. 
We're talking about the one who created all that we can see and not see through the power of his word, who brought everything into existence out of nothing. And not only the one who created all that we see, but he actually interacts with his creation in such a way that he sustains it, he keeps it going, and he cooperates with his creation in such a way that he brings about everything, everything that he has willed. There is nothing that happens apart from God's will. He is the king. And yet you're being told this morning to go before this God, bring your complaints, and boldly make requests. Not only that, but we actually see in Scripture a God who wants us to do that. So how, how is it possible that we can do this and quite honestly not be zapped by God? Right? How, is, how is this possible? Let's, let's end here at Hebrews chapter 4. It's important for us to, to understand Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Another way to translate that word confidence in verse 16 is boldness. So the reality is that in the middle of our pain and suffering, we do not suffer alone. We have a perfect high priest who has suffered more than we can imagine. One who has suffered and yet is perfect. One who was the sacrifice on our behalf, who sympathizes with our weaknesses and who understands our frailties. It's because of this high priest, because of Jesus, we're able to go before God with boldness. Because our high priests we can confidently go before God and make these bold requests to our King. Jesus has made peace between us and the Father through his sacrifice. And when we go before God with our lament, when we speak the language of grief, we are going before God who chooses to see us not through the lenses of our sin, but through the lenses of his dear Son. He sees us who were once enemies that are now his friends. He sees those who have been adopted into his family through Jesus. He sees those whom he has poured out his mercy and his grace and his steadfast love on us through his Son. He sees us whom he has chosen to love, to humbly come before him, broken, hurting, in pain, bringing our complaints, boldly asking for him to work in such a way that is consistent with his character. That is how he looks at us when he comes, or when we come before him. He looks at us as a loving, tender, merciful, gracious, compassionate Heavenly Father upon his dear children. That is why we can come before God humbly, but with confidence, bringing bold requests to him. In the middle of our pain, let us turn to God in prayer. Let us bring our complaints to him and boldly ask him to act in a way that is consistent with his character. Let us pray. Heavenly Father,